0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now.
1: Hello, Deep State Radio listeners. To celebrate the launch of our new login and feed management system, we are offering membership for just $5 per month or $50 per year. Members receive access to exclusive bonus content An invitation to the DSR Slack community, an ad-free listening experience, a nightly newsletter version of the DSR Daily Brief podcast, and more. To take advantage of this offer, please visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy. There is no need to enter a promo code. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy. Thank you very much.
2: Hello, and welcome to a special July 4th weekend edition of our podcast. I'm extremely delighted to welcome not only Dr. Kavita Patel, who is always here at this time of the week, former guru in the Obama White House, current practicing physician. How are you today, Kavita?
0: I'm really looking forward to today's podcast because we have some very special, not guests,
2: Guests. Well, they're guests. They're guests on this guests. podcast. They have their, their own their podcast. Their family.
0: They do. Their family. They they us, have so. their
2: own podcast and they can do whatever they want there. But but we're bringing them here. And those guests are Chris Cotmore, who's a big mucky muck in this giant DSR network empire, but also the co-host of the Daily Deep State, as as I like to refer to it, but I alone refer to it that way. And his sidekick in that enterprise, Grant Haver, who is also the host of the podcast Deep State Network for Kids. No, what is
3: <laughs> that would be a good one. <laughs> That's exactly it's, it's just about <laughs> elementary schools and what uh, what Juicy Fruits the best. Yeah. DSR for Kids. What's the name of your, that podcast there, Grant? The podcast is called Next in Foreign Policy.
2: Next in foreign policy. And it's it's for the young folks. I assume you have a lot of music and dancing on the podcast.
3: Yeah, the dancing's a little hard to see because it's an audio only podcast, but we we do it in the mind. You know, I'm thinking a
2: TikTok might be a good idea. What do you think, Kavita?
0: I agree. I I think that uh, we can, why don't we aim to move that to, we'll move this platform or at least a couple of podcasts into TikTok.
2: Would you do a TikTok? Have you done TikTok? I,
0: I have not. And it's largely because I just didn't want the Chinese government to have my information. But since I have an iPhone, I've given up on that. So yeah, we should do it.
2: They have your information already.
0: I, like as I point out, but, I might as well just embrace it. So, but yes. you know,
2: the, the other aspect of this is like, Chris, how old are your kids? 15 and 11. Right. So if you were to say, I'm going to do a TikTok, they'd stop you. They'd, have vis- they'd take your phone from you, right?
1: Oh, yeah. They wouldn't, let, they wouldn't let that happen. There's no way. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. They don't want to be embarrassed by, by their old dad.
2: And
0: Kavita, how old are your kids? Too young. Five and seven. So, yeah, so they would it. let you do it. You they would find it window. amusing. Yeah, they would find it amusing. Right.
2: I mean, I will tell you something. I, you know, I have never been on Facebook. And the reason I've never been on Facebook is that my daughters, who literally physically put me onto Twitter when I had some book coming out once, they said, you may not go on Facebook because otherwise we'll have to adapt alternative identities on Facebook because we don't want you meddling. Now, well,
0: that was good advice they gave you, though. You're the, like, turns out your daughters were right. So maybe they're yeah. onto something.
2: Well, they're they are onto something as they usually are. And now, of course, my my older daughter has this very highfalutin attitude towards Twitter, where she says, "You know, I hate Twitter, and I never post unless it's absolutely necessary." And you know, she's a media queen, so she does that kind of thing. As we approach the July Fourth weekend, I hardly know where to begin. We had two more Supreme Court cases today, the day we're recording this. One gutting our ability to fight climate change, which I mean, why would that even be a priority? Who cares about the end of the world? But literally, the Republican Party has become the the pro-end-of-the-world party. And of course, we had Cassidy Hutchinson this week and the January 6th thing. We had President Biden do a NATO press conference that literally for the last 10 years would have been unthinkable, where he essentially said, Finland and Sweden are joining everybody in nato is going to spend more money we are focusing on russia we're moving troops forward we're going to have a higher troop commitment and we're focusing on china by the way the i mean it was like nato was dead three or four years that has happened this week and and there've been a host of welter of other stories when you are standing over the patel family barbecue where i'm i'm sure you'll be Whipping up a fantastic holiday feast, what do you think people are going to be talking about on July Fourth, Kavita?
0: Honestly, uh, I'm the only Patel. My husband and kids have my husband's last name, so it'll be a mixed barbecue. Just you alone? Just me alone, (laughs) which is actually appropriate. I will be. This is uh, so. I have a lot of DC friends, and we will all kind of get together and lament. I think there's a, like a FU sentiment that will play out and just kind of a very undertone layered with that on top of it is, wow, we're really screwed for November. And then layered on top of that is there's so little to look forward to that we need to just live our best lives. And then it'll break into some commentary, uh, especially if my friends that are in the government, it'll break into some commentary of how can I get out and make a lot more money? And by the way, that's like a natural conversation that happens like two years into the White House. I have a very strong feeling that this is going to be the weekend where they're like, yeah, how can I get another job? And how can I actually, you know, take care of myself? And I, I don't blame them. I, I don't blame them. And I will do all I can to try that is, to that is help, help them.
2: Profan- I mean, that rings so true. It is a profound insight into how Washington works for those of you who do not work in Washington. And, you know, I would add, by the way, on the SCOTUS thing, speaking of other insights into Washington, I'm part of this thread. That might be described as kind of, I don't know, lefty folks, you know, who are kind of media, lefty media folks, you know, which is exactly what the world is worried is happening, right? That there is a thread out there where people are exchanging news. And it's all about, can you do term limits on the Supreme Court? Can you expand the Supreme Court? How do you change the way the Supreme Court works? So I think that is at the front of mind. Chris, when you are standing around the Cottonworth family barbecue in beautiful North Central New Jersey with your friends and family, will they be talking about any of this?
1: I doubt it. I just had dinner with a friend of mine. TV was on in the background, and he asked, what's going to come of the January 6th hearings? What's the end game? there potentially could be some conversations around that i'm sure my my boys are going to be more worried about what's for dinner and do we have fireworks you know cuz they sell these boxes of fireworks i mean you could get fireworks now at the grocery store or walmart and they're not bad i mean you used to have really? to drive.
2: Yeah. Let me let me let me just uh, take the the advantage here and see if anybody who's in this conversation is a physician. Is anybody?
0: I have been told I'm a doctor. <laughs> the real yeah. and
2: and what happens around July 4th when kids get a hold of these fireworks?
0: We we see a record number of injuries. By the way, not just in children, we see a record number. Of, I, I am such an anti fireworks person because all I have are these memories from working in the ER in Texas, California, and DC. Where it was like every idiot and their friend and their relative and cousin came in and oh I didn't know I couldn't put a firework there was like one very favorite phrase we heard with X rays to go with it by the way firework and where the amount of uh, fireworks and in people's intestines that we saw up there <laughs> I, was you, you would you laugh but it's like we all joke like who's gonna get the patient that says I didn't realize I sat on a firework because it always happens and so we we have that which can lead to deadly intestinal perforation. I hope you're taking notes here,
2: Chris. Exactly. Don't sit on do, the d- fireworks. Don't,
0: do not sit on the fireworks. Number of burns, like serious, first all levels of burns. I mean, it's just, it's pretty mind boggling. And the kinds of fireworks that they sell, I've always wondered, like, does anybody regulate these? It is 100% something I would avoid, Chris, if you could. Sparklers, fine, maybe. But man, those fireworks, all I see are fireworks.
2: Look, they're terrible. I was always told my parents always loved to go to the fireworks that we would go to the fireworks and I would go, you know, these things are exploding and I don't really want to be near the exploding things. And they were like, Don't worry, nothing will happen to you. And I was in a town not too far from where Chris lives when I was a little kid, and they launched the firework and it exploded, and a giant piece of it fell from the sky onto me. Like a big chunk of a fireworks shell landed directly on me. And so, you know, I realized this is a terrible idea. Grant, when you're doing your show,
3: Foreign Policy
2: for Children, you really should probably do a public service announcement about this.
3: Oh, yeah. I mean, the Supreme Court is just so interested in protecting people that I think definitely they're going to be banning fireworks next. Are you going to have a, a barbecue uh... We'll go up to my in-laws, and I think primarily our conversation is going to be about golf and the food, and, but they're pretty tuned in, so it'll be all about the Supreme Court and what we can do, a la your Twitter thread. But I think something that people are, are going to miss, you know, you brought up earlier how the Supreme Court has eviscerated the EPA, is that this really hits every administrative office, in the government, it really limits the executive power to read regulations and to make good and sound judgments moving forward. And it not only guts the stuff for climate, but puts into question a bunch of other regulations that we have protecting all sorts of things. And I think there's some real concern here that Congress is not going to be able to step up and advance the laws we need in time to re empower these organizations. Yeah. Like, for example, the Food and Drug Administration, Kavita.
2: And, you know, the interesting thing here, and I'm just interested again in your your view as a physician and and as a health policy advocate, the Supreme Court, and Justice Kagan makes this clear in her dissent to the EPA ruling, has set themselves up as the expert. They're saying, you know, we don't need experts. We've got the court, and we will tell you, what you can do and what you can't and what's within the law and and so forth. Do you think the Supreme Court's got a great record on public health expertise?
0: Safe to say the answer is no. And it's not just in this administration. We've had quite a few. Do you remember partial birth abortion? I mean, I, I can take it's not through just reproductive justice, but a number of health cases, patients in vegetative states and kind of decisions about surrogacy rights all sorts of cases where it was very clear. And in fact, it was one of the justices, Democratic kind of left-leaning justices, made a comment about, you know, the court is here to look at, the Supreme Court is here to look at existing law, not to opine on what we think health care should look like or could look like. However, you know, in strict interpretation, like this is also an area in which we are not experts. I mean, it was kind of a self-admitted notion that the court is really, Tasked to do what what I thought they were tasked to do, which is looking at existing regulations to Grant's point. This sets up a precedent with the EPA rule that changes any future action that has not even had the form of a rule. So I think that it's completely dangerous. I think the FDA is very concerned. St- staff at the FDA are incredibly concerned about what would come next for just for listeners to remind people. Everybody talks about medication abortions. There are two primary medications given by pills orally that can help to end a pregnancy. And both of these have been deemed safe and effective by the FDA. And you've had the Biden administration say over and over and over again that everyone should have access to it. And they're looking into how to allow people from kind of at least the 13 trigger states, as well as 23 states that are banning abortions in some form are going to regulate the ability for. The federal government to allow prescriptions. However, I think everybody knows that, that just, just by setting up these barriers, the Food and Drug Administration gets gets put in a corner. And when they get put in a corner, they don't like to be bold and political. They recede into a corner. And so I, I worry that you've got a Supreme Court that has no problem making health prayer regulations, <laughs> whatever they want to regulate. But there's no counterbalance, David. So I would feel more comfortable if we knew that we had a commissioner or a White House that felt like they were going to go to the mat. I wondered what you thought about Biden's kind of late-breaking announcement around carving out the filibuster for abortion. I thought that was... a
2: Well, you know, I think Biden, you know, in a low-key way, had said that he wanted to carve out the filibuster on voting rights. And this is consistent with that. And he in the press conference, NATO press conference today, went a step further and said he thought it should be carved out not just on abortion, but on all privacy-related issues. And that cuts back to your point, because Justice Thomas and his concurrence to the Dobbs decision mentioned specifically what might be next under this kind of theory, one being gay marriage, but another being contraception. Of the two pills that you talked about, I'm not sure about both of them, but I believe that the Plan B pill It's technically a contraceptive.
0: It is. Yeah, that's different. And so it gets
2: you into a blurry area and maybe a reason for them to pursue contraceptives more aggressive. And this to me, you know, I mean, it's almost impossible to imagine that we're at a point where the Supreme Court might outlaw contraceptives, outlaw not just gay marriage, but perhaps get us back to outlawing gay sex. The only footnote I'll put to that, and we'll come back to it in a second, because I I want to get the guys here, but is I saw a tweet today and I, you know, it's Twitter, but that said that Clarence Thomas thought that COVID vaccines were made from aborted fetuses. They're
0: not, right? No, they're not. And, and to... <laughs> I'll just say without going into like the tome of information to dispute this, this all stems from the use of researchers to use fetal cells, some of which did come from aborted tissue, some of which were developed in a lab, etc. cetera. So there's a whole variety, grown in a lab rather, a whole variety of ways people can do research to look for safety. This is not exclusive to vaccines. That has been translated into these mRNA vaccines have relied on aborted fetuses creating this notion that there's like a promotion of abortions to be tied to covid vaccines by the way that's something that the far right has done with almost every like public health intervention that co- that is code speak for we don't like abortions we don't like people who aren't christian we don't like people who aren't white i mean that's basically what you're hearing it's the same conversation 60 years ago that we had when we talked about Black people having different brains. And so I think there's a very, my sadness is that there's this very slippery slope though, because there was a day, David, where I'd be curious, Grant and Chris, what you think? I used to think no matter how, how what I disagreed with, with the justices kind of before Alito, before Thomas, had a respect for them, didn't agree with them, but you had a respect for them. And I can't even fathom having respect for that institution now or in my lifetime because this is what we're gonna have. We have this elite.
2: Chris, you know, the point is the data shows that approval ratings for you know the Supreme Court have them down approaching, not quite as bad, but approaching the Congress. I
0: was gonna say Congress, yes. That's, that's you know, pretty it's
2: bad. it's it's you know it's in the sort of one out of four people, one out of three people kind of range think the Supreme Court's doing doing a good job. Every day you you know you guys do the daily report. When you started it, it was all Ukraine all the time. But that issue has sort of faded from our consciousness. And even as Biden brought it up today, the whole press conference he had was about abortion, it was about the Supreme Court, it was people were not paying much attention to Ukraine. You're scanning the world press every day. Is the rest of the world tuning out?
1: yeah i think to some extent they are one of the things because we do the podcast in the morning we do the newsletter in the evening we still feature stories about what's going on in ukraine because it's it's still an incredibly important and consequential part of what's going on in the world not least of which its impact on food which plugging the podcast for kids by my co host here. They talked about this past week. And we've had some bonus briefs about food security. That is a huge problem. The energy problem, of course, is a huge problem. But there are people dying every single day in Ukraine because Russia is attacking shopping malls. And it, it, it's a story that still needs to have attention. But I will say it's become challenging to find angles on the specifically on the Ukraine story to continue to report on when there's so much going on domestically with the Supreme Court and you know and I know we 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 talked about this on Tuesday and in, in the podcast and and Norman kavita and words matter today but uh Cassidy Hutchinson she's 20, 25 year olds woman who went in front of Congress and gave explosive testimony on what happened around the January 6th riots. And, you know, I'm struck by that. I I think all of these stories obviously are important, but there's no question. Ukraine, we continue to have to pay attention to what's going on in Ukraine. And we do the best we can to find the stories, you know, around the news outlets that are covering it. Obviously the New York Times and the Washington Post are still covering, but it's, you know, it's all the same. I think, you know, you got to kind of go to BBC and Al Jazeera to figure out, you know, like, well, what what's kind of really getting the heat around Ukraine.
2: Grant, on your podcast Foreign Policy for Zoomers, the uh, the you know, Cassidy Hutchinson's probably too young to have made it onto your radar. And yet You know, there was a story today that people got kicked off of Air Force One because Meadows insisted she be on the plane, that when people wanted to reach the president, they couldn't call Meadows because he was sitting like a couch potato playing with his phone, obviously, since that's what we've seen. You know, they would call her. They would, you know, Cassidy Hutchison was the assistant president of the United States at age 25. By the way, Chris, drive this point home to your kids. Ten years from now, they could be running the world. Grant, were you struck by the amount of power this this woman had quite, quite a bit before she assumed even more by being the radical Trump White House person to tell the truth? I
3: think, honestly, I was struck more by the response by other people saying, like, oh, how young this person is. When you look at Congress... The average staffer in Congress is like 33. And that's the average, not even like the now, lowest. How old were you, Kavita, when you became a staffer? Oh,
0: I was 30.
2: I was 21. When I became a congressional press secretary, I was 21. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah,
0: I was older because I went to medical school. Okay. Okay. But, the, but, but I'm a failure. I, but senior, but, no, no, no. But I came in as a deputy, like I came in as a committee staff director. And all my colleagues were about my age, but had done things since they were 25. And by the way, it's not unusual. There are many aides to very senior people. The difference here is that those senior people actually kind of had a filter and a brain. And here you have senior people who clearly were not only were they corrupt, but they actually had zero balls. To nothing. It's it's not stunning. It's not stunning to me what Mark Meadows did. It is stunning to watch like all these other kind of, you know, Mick Mulvaney, all these people like outraged. Give me a break. Come on. I mean, that's that's what's crazy. Anyway, Grant, I interrupted you.
3: No, no, no. Kavita, you took the words right out of my mouth. I mean, I think it's a little shocking how the young people tend to run Washington secretly behind all the older people. Um, Like when you look on TV, you always see someone over the age of 70 at the lectern, but then behind them are like a bunch of 30-year-olds. But what's really shocking was that all of these older people who've been around Washington for years, you know, Mark Meadows isn't a newcomer. He's not someone who like Trump pulled along by his coattails. He'd been there for years. Yes, he's been a loon for many years, but he's been in Washington for years. And yet here he is hiding behind his phone when Washington burns. It's insane to me that this woman who is so young, who was a newcomer to Washington, was someone who came in on Trump's coattails as someone who's on the far right, who we should not be like, ah, rah, rah, this is a a great person. Obviously, you don't get high in the Trump White House if you have a ton of good policy ideas to begin with. But here she is doing the right thing. And I think that is shocking.
2: She was an intern two years before she was in this job. But you know, Kavita, what struck me when I was listening to it about this particular aspect of it that nobody's written about, but I believe I've perceived it correctly, is that Meadows was sitting there kind of glumly because Trump said, leave me alone. And he he said, do not bother me. I just won't, you know, I don't want to be disturbed. And my sense was that Meadows was Sort of doom scrolling there because he was waiting for Trump to tweet something, waiting for instructions from his higher power via the Twitterverse because he wasn't getting them from the office that was 10 yards down the hall.
0: That's a very interesting point, David. I was trying to think about kind of other, there are no other analogous times when our president has tried to incite a riot, but if I can think of times when things were incredibly tense and rested on the president's decisions, you're right. When would the chief of staff just been sitting and, you know, when when would the chief of staff be so separated from the president? It's
2: it's a good point. No, I because I've watched West Wing and it never <laughs> happened. I'm,
0: well, I, I can tell you, having watched now several chiefs of staff across Republican and Democratic administrations like you have. Could you imagine Ron Klain, like not being around Biden for, no, you know, no. there's no universe. I mean, in fact, we would often joke like Rahm Emanuel knew everything, you know, before Michelle Obama, before Barack Obama's, you know, mother-in-law Like, and nobody else knew anything. Rom knew because that's, that well, was that, his job. And that's,
2: and by the way, people said this about Cassidy Hutchinson, you know, I had a triumph yesterday, such as it is for me, they're, they're small victories. But I tweeted at Armando Iannucci, who is a great satirical mind, the mind behind the death of Stalin, Veep, some of these other things. And I said, A, would you never draw a character as broad as Trump? I mean, you know, Trump was beyond what you would parody. And B, you're the only person who can make this movie. Will you make it? And I, 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 would, I don't know what possessed me to do this, but he responded to my tweet. And he said, "I'll mull," and it was like my triumph. So, like Armando Iannucci is like sitting, considering this. Grant, I know you're a big fan of the Death of Stalin.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great movie, and definitely one of the political satires of our our generation. I think. I think what's hard to look at when you look back at the Trump administration, and I think there's a book coming out soon about how many good Republicans kept us on the rails a little bit.
2: Really? What is that Uh, book called, Grant?
3: I believe it is called American Resistance. Wow.
2: Wow, oh. that's a great title. What is a subtitle? Do you know by any chance? Uh
3: you know, I'm having a hard time, but but David, <laughs> I, I think I think you, you might if do you, you know if the you author again. Is it how the
2: deep, deep state saved the nation?
3: Yeah, that sounds that sounds about right. Um <laughs>
0: That wow. sounds
2: right. Wow, that sounds like
0: who's the talented those... person that wrote that? Yeah, it I sounds like that. one
2: of the bright young voices you should have on your podcast.
3: Agree. Absolutely. Um I, I think what's interesting when you look back is how buffoonish and foolish the people were who were running the country. And now seeing how the ripple effects of those decisions that they made are going to impact us from years to come. I think you had a a great insight on Tuesday's podcast where you said, even if Trump doesn't make it to 2024, a Ron DeSantis with this court is no better. And I think, you know, the number of ways that Trump, his administration, and Congress during those years failed the American people, it's going to reverberate for the rest of our lives, if not longer. Yeah, it's true. So, Chris, tell us,
2: is Trump going to run again? We have seen you know, people making little whispers, including Andrew Yang, by the way, the, that great future president of the United States, that Trump would announce on July 4th as part of a strategy, perhaps, to make any prosecution look political. But you've been following this very closely now, Chris, and I'm just wondering, do you think Trump is the candidate in 2024?
1: I honestly do. You know, a lot is going to depend on what comes of the January 6th hearings, whether the Justice Department and Merrick Garland is willing, able... To bring charges against a former president, but but I why wouldn't he? I I don't see. I mean, yes, of course, Ron DeSantis. Yes, we have Greg
2: Abbott. Greg why Abbott, enough? or as I like to refer to him, Cavita's governor.
0: Yeah, that's right, my my governor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I'm with you, Chris. Although on our Words Matter podcast, Norm brought up a good point that it's all the reason the House needs to. It's all the reason impeachment needs to happen soon. So that we don't let Trump run again. <laughs> so that we don't let So
1: him run again. so yeah, so so you know, when I when I heard him say that, is that a viable option to have yet another impeachment hearing? And then my question for you, David, is how is it that you know we went through the period that we went through from 2016 to 2020 under the Trump administration? We maintained a majority in the House of Representatives. Won the executive branch. And it still seems like the Democrats are a minority party. The Democrats are constantly on the defensive.
2: I thought the question we're going to ask was going to be slightly different. I want to answer that and then I'll get to yours. And the question I thought was how, after four years of Trump, is there still 53% of the Republican Party, twice as many who support DeSantis who think he should be the candidate? After everything that we know, and by the way, you know, we know a lot more about, you know, I mean, one of the things that we have mentioned, which also happened this week was, I don't, I don't know how it's pronounced, but Ghislaine Maxwell got sentenced to 20 years for a bunch of crimes that a bunch of men committed, very likely one of whom was Donald Trump. And, and, you know, this guy's terrible. So how, why does he win? And, you know, I once wrote an article back in the days I was at foreign policy about the shallow state. And the punchline of the article was that for a lot of Americans, ignorance is a political statement. Ignorance becomes a way of striking back against the elites for which for whom they blame, have so much blame for all of the problems in their life. And to some extent, I, you know, these people have tuned out, tuned into Fox, listened to Laura Ingraham, or listened to Tucker Carlson, or listen to Sean Hannity and just sort of said, I don't, I don't care. I don't care about science. I don't care about this. I don't care about that. That'll show them, you know, I'll elect Trump. That'll show them. Now, having said that, you know, you bring up another point, which has been troubling me. And I know that it is, I mean, Kavita and I talk about it in code every single week, but that is that we are active members of the limp noodle party. And the Democratic Party has responded to the scorched earth tactics of Mitch McConnell and the Federalist Society and the dark money donors and Donald Trump by saying, why can't we all get along here? By saying, hey, let's try and find a compromise with these people. Let's try try to understand our friends in Red America who don't just reject the democratic political views, they reject the premise in which we are governing our country. They reject the factual basis in which we view the world. And, you know, maybe, maybe that's changing a little bit. Kavita, is it changing a little bit? You know, that- I
0: think it is. I do. I do think it's changing a little bit we ended our podcast with kind of a little bit of hope where it's not just activists getting together and kind of milling about on on Roe v. Wade. It's, all right, we're going to try to take this. If the government, there was this hope that the Biden administration would provide some safety net for all women somewhere. That's not going to happen. So you're now seeing that being done. And you're seeing some like shining stars. We've talked about We've talked about Katie Porter and some names that always come up, but you're seeing hopefully some kind of their, the primaries and some new entrants into races that could actually help to move a needle. My fear is that you have a set, you know, we only have this much time, David. So I'm, I'm incredibly concerned. Norm brought up, but once again, the Congress is recessing. <laughs> they, they feel like they need to go home and earn, raise money, which I, I they kind of do, but they also need to. Do some work. And that's where I'm left a little limp myself. I have f- some faith, but I have no faith in this Congress. Therefore, how much? No, no, they're down?
2: not gonna, right. And if they lose, you know, I mean, the Democrats may hold on to the Senate, may even increase their number of seats, but they'll probably lose the House. Speaker McCarthy and, and, you know, Jim Jordan House, you know, it, whoop, you know, it's, it's going to be next to impossible for two years to get anything done during the Biden impeachment hearings and everything else that we hear. And on the little Twitter thread that I was referring to earlier, the DM thread, Grant, one of the questions was, if not Biden, who? And I was advocating a position. And my position was Kamala Harris is the vice president. Kamala Harris is the best positioned person to succeed Biden in 2024, or 2028. People who don't think she was a very compelling candidate seem to forget that Joe Biden was not a very compelling candidate. What made Biden the electable candidate was that Jim Clyburn of South Carolina said, I'm going to back him. And he won South Carolina. Jim Clyburn has already said that if it's not Biden, he's going to back Kamala Harris. And Kamala Harris has grown and she is vice president of the United States and she's the first woman and woman of color to be the vice president of the United States. And if the party unites around her and she's actually running against one of these horrific Republicans like DeSantis or somebody sometime in the future, it's not you know an abstraction. It's not her versus the ideal of her. It's the Democratic Party united, mobilized around somebody who touches important parts of its base without having a primary fight, which would blow it up. So Grant, Chris, and then Kavita, what do you think of the theory?
3: I mean, I worked for the vice president in South Carolina on her presidential campaign. So obviously, big fan. I think a primary fight would be disastrous to the party's chances. Uh, But I think you hit on a really key point, which is that Democrats have to unite in the face of these challenges. We have to act like our rhetoric is actually true if we're worried about democracy, if we're worried about climate change, if we're worried about a woman's right to choose, then we need to stop bickering about dumb stuff. We have to agree to actually champion on the issues we care about. And I think that's what's been so hard is that whether it's our friend Joe Manchin from West Virginia or others in the Senate or in the House who are hiding behind Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema from doing the big things, from standing up for our values. We need to unite and do those things. And I think we also have to be willing to go out and sell our stuff to people that we traditionally haven't done that for. So we need to be in Nebraska. We need to be in Texas. We need to be in South Carolina, even when it looks like there could be no deeper red. We have to be there and we have to convince people that we're on the right side. We can't just consolidate in the cities and think that we will succeed. We won't. We have to win even when the tables are turned against us if we really believe the rhetoric that we're saying. So I agree with you. I think Kamala Harris is the path forward. I think that a primary fight would be foolish and a waste of energy and ultimately hurt our chances of beating whoever the foolish Republican candidate is in 2024 and will ultimately put our planet and put our rights in a place that is dangerous not just for our generation but for years to come that's why they call him the zoomer alexander hamilton
2: ladies and gentlemen chris what do you say
1: i was going to start singing the song oh yeah i also agree pretty recently i i watched the accidental president think what you like about it but you know i think in the terms of the just the Clinton campaign and not visiting some of the swing states, they just kind of thought they had it had it in the bag, you know. So what what Grant's saying about getting out there is important. Uniting behind a candidate is important. There were so many Democratic candidates in the last primary that they just picked each other off. And then the second the second thing is there's a bit of precedent, I'd say. Pretty recent in terms of, um, you know, Kathy Hochul in New York. And again, I, I my opinion of her prior to her having an opportunity to run the state of New York was, you know, there'd probably no way that she'd become governor. But she's actually turned out to be an excellent administrator, governor. She's united the, the party behind her. People are excited about a strong woman candidate, and that's really the idea we we need to get behind. I think just just at some point that decision you know has to be made. I'm worried, you know, to some extent, you know obviously if Biden runs, we'll all support Biden's second term, but we highlight all of all of the good and you know unfortunately for for us, we also have to deal with though no fault of his, the economic situation that we're in, regular Americans having to figure out healthcare, how they're going to fill their tank with gas, how sadly, how abortions and contraception and and all of that, you know, fit into fit into the mix. I think, think that would be a challenge. I think Kamala, though, is is the is a an excellent candidate if he decides not to run.
2: Kavita?
0: Grant and I have talked about how we've both worked, not me as formally as Grant on the campaign, but I did a lot of work on her healthcare issues, which were short-lived since she didn't have as long of a campaign. I will say this, David, when you first asked the question, I said, I know David, I know he thinks Kamala is the person I don't think it is. And I had this whole rationale. And now I really do have to say that that whole rationale is kind of what I fall into this. I fell into this fallacy of what most people in DC do like, oh, she doesn't know who she is yet. She's not electable. She doesn't have the experience. And it reminds, honestly, it reminds me of 2006 when Barack Obama was going around against Hillary and trying to curry support and endorsement from senior senators, including my former boss, Ted Kennedy. And it was amazing that same narrative, but it'll be that much worse for Harris because she's a woman. And so I think we do need to start doing exactly what you're doing, where we put down like a groundswell of support that she is the, she should be the next president, not could she, would she, maybe, should she, she should be, she must be the next president. And why not start with that fact? (laughs) She will be the next president and prediction instead of always doing what we do, where we Micro dissect like all the reasons she can't and then her the inevitable opponents who have no business running against her, you know, no name house member from who cares what state and takes up all this time. Like, why don't we just get our act together?
2: That's interesting. Uh, people behind the scenes might think, well, you know, this is David's like podcasting company. And what are these people going to do but agree with him? But first, of all, I, no, I, I
0: know I wasn't going to agree with him.
2: No, well, that's the point is <laughs> I know anybody's listened to you and I in the podcast, you know, you disagree sometimes. And, <laughs> and, you know, Grant and Chris and I, we disagree all the time. And, you know, I am firmly of the belief if Joe Biden is the candidate in 2024, as Grant says, we all line up and and support yeah. Joe Biden. And I don't know what's going to happen between now and 2024, so it's impossible to guess. But I think, you know, fostering a lot of speculation about somebody else or, you know, the the idea of the cleansing power of a vital, you know, primary campaign, it's just nonsense. And it's something to be avoided. So in 2024, 2028, um, you know, I do think that the vice president should be the person, the party unites behind, and I reserve the right to change my judgment if something happens between now and then. But so far, so good. I do want to briefly you know, draw attention to the fact that on our Tuesday podcast, I think it was, Rosa Brooks made a point of saying that she's out in Wyoming now, where she spends some of her summers, and suggesting ways that people could support Liz Cheney. Liz, I don't agree with Liz Cheney on any issue politically, except that the United States should be a democracy and people should tell the truth and follow the law. As it happens, that's the defining issue of the moment. And the idea that somehow she would be defeated for doing the right thing would be devastating for the United States. And so I just want to reiterate the point that Rosa made, which is people should do what they can and provide some support for her, even if they disagree with her and everything else. Because this election is not about the price of gas. Uh, and recent polls have suggested that January 6th and Roe versus Wade have suggested that this election is about surviving keeping democracy alive and about preserving freedoms that the Supreme Court and the radical right of the Republican Party want to strip away from women and people of color and uh, LGBTQ plus people and and from all of us and so this is it's about something completely different it requires Different set of values, uh, and and a real laser like focus on what's important. That's why you know we do all the podcasts that we do here, and you know you've got Kavita and Norm Ornstein doing Words Matter, and you've got Grant doing. Sorry, I've used so many different names for Grant's podcast, Foreign Policy for Zoomers, and and we've got Grant and Chris doing the Daily podcast and we've got a DSR and we've got even Secret Life of Cookies out there. And uh, DSR is two or three days a week. We've got uh, another, a new podcast coming that's going to launch in the beginning of September on defense related issues. And uh, am I forgetting something, Chris? I don't think so. Are you doing secret podcast? Is, is there some secret podcast I don't know about?
1: There's not, as far as I know, Grant. Grant might be working on uh, another podcast.
2: Yeah, well, that'd be great behind I, I just, the scenes. Yeah, well, he's he's a he's a he's a dynamo. Well, we do
1: we do do our bonus brief conversations that are fifteen minutes long with various experts as well.
2: Yeah, so I mean, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot, there's a lot being done, and we're going to continue to do more and follow these guys as they do their various podcasts and uh, come back to this one periodically. Don't abandon the original and, um, and have a good July 4th and a safe one. And I just want to go back to Kavita for the last word. What is the one thing you want everybody to remember on July 4th?
0: Do not sit on a firework. Do
2: not sit on a firework. Chris, have you written that down?
1: I I wrote it down. I will not sit on a firework, but I cannot promise. That there won't be a firework or two in my.
2: Yeah, do not vicinity. sit on a firework. All right, folks, have a good holiday. We'll see you next week. Bye bye.